0: As I was looking for a story to kind of open with this week, I was looking, this is Hope Week, so I was looking for good hope stories, and I found this article that kind of laid out like 10 great hope stories uh, in sports that haven't been made movies yet. And so I thought it'd be fun to share a couple of them. That way, if any of you are movie makers and you're looking for inspiration, uh, maybe you could do this. But if none of us are looking for our next Hollywood blockbuster, it might be kind of cool to hear these. That way, if we do hear them, See him show up on the big screen, um, we'll already know the stories. One was Roberto Clement. Anybody remember him? Yeah, a couple. Of, I'm not going to say anything about age. Roberto Clement was a baseball player, 15-time All-Star, World Series Championship MVP, Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. Um, he was a pioneer in Latin American athletics. But what was cool was he spent almost all of his off-season time doing humanitarian work in Latin America. Um, He was renowned for his off-field generosity. And then on December 31st, 1972, Clement died in a plane crash while doing charity work in Nicaragua. He was helping after a a huge earthquake. Uh, His death kind of transcended his baseball legend, um, and he kind of became a humanitarian legacy. Then there was one off the Ivory Coast in 2006, the World Cup team. Anybody know anything about this? Uh, in 2006 during a civil war that had been going on for years, the Ivory Coast uh, soccer team qualified for the World Cup, which they had never done before. And for the first time in years and years and years, both sides stopped fighting long enough to watch the World Cup. And the, the basically the civil war that had been nothing but bloodshed for years, um, everybody hit pause on the war long enough to watch the World Cup. And then unfortunately, when the When the cup was over, they went back to shooting each other. Then I read one in 1951, the San Francisco Dons football team. This is 51, remember? It was a college football team and had the best season in the college's history um, playing football. Got invited to their first bowl game ever. And the only requirement to come into the bowl game was they would have to leave their two African-American players behind. African-Americans weren't allowed to play in bowl games. And so the San Francisco Dons decided to forego the bowl game. They turned down the invite and did not play. And they set a precedent that from there started the chain where African-Americans were allowed to play in bowl games. That would make a great movie. But this morning we're talking about hope. And it's amazing how sports stories inspire hope in us more than almost anything else. And this is our first week of Advent, and I know a lot of us come from backgrounds where we We celebrate Christmas more than Advent, and Advent's kind of new to some of us, so I'm going to give a brief explanation of kind of what Advent is historically. Originally, the the church baptized new believers every January. That was just when it was done, and Advent became the season of preparation when they tell the people for about a month to be quiet, set back, and kind of meditate and prepare for this huge life-changing event that was about to take place. And so Advent became the season, and they felt like the, this was the perfect time of year to do it because the whole church was already celebrating this this uh, moment in the past when Jesus kind of broke into the story of history. And so, what what a better place to kind of meditate on the way Jesus was about to break in to these new believers' lives through the the sacrament of baptism than than during this kind of Christmas season? So, through this, it kind of became. You know, eventually spread from just new believers to really the whole church would not only celebrate uh, this season when Jesus kind of broke into history, but also look forward with hope to the time when he would break back into history and kind of come back to set everything right and redeem all things. And and then it had this personal aspect that the that the new converts brought in where we would celebrate the idea of Jesus breaking into our lives and, and making things new. In our lives. And so it became this kind of meditative preparation, this, this quiet season, uh, where you would kind of prepare your hearts to receive Jesus. Um, and obviously in modern days it's kind of gone the other way. It's become this fast paced, crazy, you know, spending spree, this kind of commercial thing we do. And so one of the things we try to do is kind of embrace the old advent, this, this season of quiet preparation, um, for God to, to kind of break into our lives, and it ties us in with this truly ancient tradition that the Jews have been a part of for for a long time of waiting for the Messiah. This advent waiting that the that the Jews have been a part of forever, and so we kind of tap into that 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 advent um, that waiting. The word advent just means appearing. For we're we're just waiting for the appearing of the Messiah, cosmically when he comes back and makes all things right, but also personally we we wait for him to show up into our story and, and change things. And, and it's a season when we can think of the the areas where we really need Jesus. We really need him to come into our lives and and touch us and change us and help us. And, and Advent becomes a season when we can wait for that. So we kind of follow the classic liturgy um, of Advent where we focus on four meditations, uh, hope, peace, joy, and love. And we'll spend a week meditating on each one. Um, also during Advent, our church classically plugs into the liturgy or to the lectionary. If you don't know what that is, it's the Book of Common Prayer. It's this book that probably two-thirds of the church uses to kind of find what they're going to teach on that week. Um, and they actually lay out a lectionary reading. There's a, an Old Testament reading, a psalm, a gospel reading, and an epistle reading for every single week of the year. So the what we consider high church, the people who follow a lot of liturgy, they'll just preach off the lectionary each week, and we don't do that completely, just during Advent and Lent, we kind of call the high holidays of the Christian calendar. We kind of plug in for a while, we we preach what the rest, what a huge chunk of the church is preaching, gives us a chance to kind of tie into them and be connected to the rest of the body, and then we spend the rest of the year talking about stuff that we want to talk about, but that basically means that the passages I'll preach for the next four weeks, I didn't choose, they were kind of chosen for me, they're from the lectionary, I've just studied and meditated on them, and uh, and tried to come up with something for us. So our text for this week, um, I actually want to look at the relationship between two of the lectionary passages. It's really kind of the time that passes between them. We're gonna start with Psalms 122. I'm gonna give a little bit of background here because anybody remember last night or last week when we talked about the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh was anybody here for that? And we and we talked about how Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he kept trying to take the conversation personal and talk about her life, and she kept deflecting with, with these theological discussions. He's like, hey. Go get your husband. She's like, I don't have a husband. know you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. The guy you're shacking up with now is not even your husband. She goes, you know, there's this debate I want to talk about. And she kind of deflects and talks about this. You know, the Jews say we're supposed to worship here, and the Samaritans say we're supposed to worship there. And she, she tries to kind of keep him out of her backyard with these theological talks. Well, the theological talk she was having actually comes from tonight's passage. When the Jews first came into the promised land, they originally set up worship on this mountain called Shechem, and it was just this place where the, they, they had their kind of first worship services. But then as they conquered land, they took the ark with them. And so the ark just kind of lived in a tent. It gave them power in battle, and and they just kind of took it around. So up to this point in in David's story, there was no permanent place to worship God. It moved, and it was it was kind of fluid and God's presence, which is what they considered the, the ark of the covenant, was in a tent. It had no permanent place. And so when David becomes king, his very first act was to find the best city he could. It was a city called <laughs> terrible place for a list. Um, it was the city, city called Jabus, and Jabus was a Canaanite city. It wasn't a, an Israelite city, but it had these huge, gorgeous walls and it was a safe city. And so David's, very first act as king was to conquer Jabus. and they conquered it. They kicked out the Canaanites. They started to rebuild what they had to tear down to get in, and they renamed it Jerusalem. So this becomes the, the, the beginning of Jerusalem. At this point, this city that we know so well wasn't even really part of Israel yet, not until David's time. And for the first time ever, David moves the ark into a permanent city. He moves it into Jerusalem. They now have a permanent place to worship. And it kind of becomes the center of Jewish worship. And incidentally, Shechem is in Samaria. And so when they moved the ark from Shechem down to Jerusalem, those northern people that eventually became uh, Samaria were not super happy about it. Some of them didn't like the idea of moving the ark down south. And so that kind of was the birth of the tensions between the Samaritans and and the Israelites that we talked about last week. So that's the old argument she was trying to pull up on Jesus, like, were we supposed to worship on the mountain or down in Jerusalem? And, and uh, anyway, so David, immediately upon moving into Jerusalem, he writes this song that we're going to actually read tonight. He goes, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And now, here we are, standing inside your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a well-built city. Its seamless walls cannot be breached. All the tribes of Israel, the Lord's people, make their pilgrimage here. They come to give thanks to the name of the Lord, as, they, as the law requires of Israel. Here stand the thrones where judgment is given, the thrones of the dynasty of David. Pray for peace in Jerusalem. May all who love this city prosper. Oh, Jerusalem, may there be peace within your walls and prosperity in your palaces. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, may you have peace. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek what is best for you, O Jerusalem. So David steps into the city. It's gorgeous. It's uh, safe. It gives the, the people uh, a space that can, they can call their own, where they can worship. And it, it kind of sets off this idea that Israel was going to be the, the center of everything. They were going to be the light on a hill. They were going to be the ones who shined out to the Gentile world what worship of a true God could look like. And so Jerusalem seems like kind of the final step in getting to do that. David kind of has his this is it moment. like finally everything is right. Anybody ever had that moment that, ah, this is it. Anybody ever had that moment and then been disappointed on the other side when you realize that? And if not, maybe you've imagined that moment. Like if only this one thing could happen – then finally everything could be right. My wife's kind of done that for years. Like when our house starts to get kind of chaotic, and she has this deep inner thought: "Life, I could just get everything organized, just right." So usually what she'll do is tear out a closet, put in new shelves, put everything in its place. Everything now has a home, and she's like, "Ah, this is it. Now nothing will ever get messy." And <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then there's always that huge crash on the other side of that when you. Come home and everything is everywhere and the shelves have been torn down and maybe that's just my house. But David's in that moment. He's in that. This is it. Finally, everything is right and nothing will ever be wrong again, which brings us to the second passage. This is in the time of Isaiah. The background of this story is this is years later. Uh, Israel's had a civil war. They've split in half uh, into the northern country and the southern country. Uh the northern country has been taken captive by Assyria. They've been devastated. Um and Isaiah is writing at a time and, and some people believe that there was actually two Isaiahs and they kind of crammed their books together because there's some things that feel like it happened later. Some believe that uh, it was one Isaiah and he was having a future vision. Either way, Isaiah gets to see the fall of Jerusalem. He gets to see Jerusalem sacked. And he's standing in the midst of this kind of fallen, broken. Jerusalem. And he writes this. He says, this is the vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills. The people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His words will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between nations and settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So Isaiah um, writes this. As a symbol of hope. What I'd like to do now is look at what we can learn about Isaiah's hope. Because his hope happens in a weird place. He is standing in the wreck of a promise. So he's got this promise that David saw, that David thought he had experienced, and it had fallen, it had crashed. Everything that that Isaiah and everybody like Isaiah had hoped for seemed to be crashing down around him. And he stands there in the wreckage and writes this, unbelievably hopeful passage. So the first thing I want to look at, we're going to break down kind of three things we can learn from hope from this passage tonight. The first is that hope needs an object. Hope needs an object. Hope needs something, an anchor to cling to. Some say that it has to be realistic, you know, but I wouldn't go that far, but I do believe it has to have something upon which to build itself. You know, hope isn't something we just, kind of make up out of nowhere. Something starts it. It has a root that it starts from. Something that makes it at least plausible. Kind of like, you know, the second the chiefs got mahone. Like you know that that suddenly there's hope. Suddenly there's there's something new, you know, that wasn't there before. And this is only step one, and it doesn't mean need much hope, but it has to have some hope. I think for Isaiah that was Psalms one twenty two. He looked back at David's view of this city and, it, and it, gave him, it gave him a spark of hope, the beginning of hope. David's song would have been written somewhere four to six hundred years before Isaiah stands in the rubble. And it's this promise, it's this beautiful vision of what this city was and could be again. And Isaiah sees that and he, and he, and he clings to that and he, and he uses that spark to build hope. But that brings us to the second thing that hope has to be it has to be honest hope isn't just like pie in the sky you know something we just make up it's not it's not saying that we have something we don't have hope has to hope has to be honest paul says it this way in romans 8 when he's talking about hope he says we were given this hope when we were saved if we already have something we don't need to hope for it like he kind of defines what hope is there. Hope has this innate tension built into it, really almost an innate pain that hope has, where it, we wouldn't be hoping if things were right. If, if everything was great, there's no need to hope for anything. Hope has in its definition the fact that things are broken, the fact that, that things aren't the way they should be. And, and so hope, whenever we feel it, and this makes hope risky, Anybody ever felt that when, you, when you, you start to hope for something and it scares you? Anybody had that when you're like, I don't know if I want to dare hope. I don't know if I want to dare put that out there because it, what if it doesn't happen? It, it could hurt. Hope has this like built-in pain that comes with it. It has to be honest. Hope has to be honest or it's not really hope. Hope recognizes the brokenness. Isaiah reads about this Jerusalem that David saw, this beautiful shining light. But he also looks around and sees what it is. He sees what it's become. He's honest that he's standing in a shell, a broken relic of what was. And the vision that he sees in Psalms 122 probably makes reality more painful. That it's not what it was. That it's not what it was supposed to be. This is where hope kind of becomes hope. This is where hope kind of becomes beautiful because the third thing we learn is that hope bridges the gap between what should be and what is. Let's look again at what Isaiah says. He says, This is the vision that Isaiah son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and the people of all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways and he, we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will meditate, mediate, sorry, between the nations and will settle, settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Isaiah's standing in the midst of a mess that had been David's glorious city, but he saw more. His hope bridged the gap between what he was seeing with his eyes and what he knew could be, what he knew God had promised. In a land that had been ransacked by greed, Isaiah sees this national cooperation and sharing. In a city that had been devastated by war, he sees the potential... For peace. He saw hope. He had real hope. 27 years ago when Esther and I first got married, uh, Brother mooneyhan we went to a church where everybody was brother and sister. Brother Mooneyhan was asking me how I like marriage, how I like being married. We were newly married. And you don't have to look at me long to understand this, but uh, I immediately went to food. Oh, my God, she's an amazing cook. (laughs) How do you like being married? Love the food. It's awesome. I was like, "She's incredible." Every morning I wake up and she she cooks me breakfast. It's like when I wake up, breakfast is already there. I'm talking about eggs and bacon and biscuits and gravy and she this perfect hollandaise sauce on her eggs benedict. Like she she's an amazing cook. And Brother Mooneyhan holding his coffee, kind of chuckles and goes, "Give it time." I can say after 27 years, with all honesty, Brother Mooneyhan was absolutely right. But I have not given up hope one of these days when the kids are gone. (laughs) Esther gave me permission to throw it under the bus, by the way. Hope sees reality. It sees what is it. It's not blind optimism that refuses to be honest when things are bad. Hope knows what is, but it also knows what we were created for. Hope knows the way things were supposed to be. And hope bridges the gap between those two. Those three elements of hope has to have an object. It has to be honest. And it bridges the gap between the two. This is biblical hope. Advent hope is what this is. We've heard for years that biblical love is different than other kinds of love. You know, because we can love a cheeseburger. We can love The Bachelor, you know, whatever. We can be madly in love with our new boyfriend or girlfriend, and then we read the Bible, and it says that you can love your enemies, and, and it like shows us this thing we call love's got to be different because I'm not feeling nothing for my enemies, right? And so we, and it's the same thing with joy. We, we read about biblical joy, and 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 you know it feels so much like happiness. It's almost hard to tell the difference. And so if God blesses you and you're you feel good about it, is that joy or is that happiness? I don't, you know, is it Based on circumstances, and then the Bible tells you, you know, count it all joy when you're persecuted and suffer, you know, at the hands of other people. You're like, well, that's got to be a different kind of joy because that doesn't feel like happiness at all. Hope is the same thing. Hope, hope, you know, we talk about hope. Man, I applied for this new job. I really hope I get it. Or I, you know, I've always wanted to visit Hawaii. I hope I get to go when I can afford it. Like, we have hope that's, that's normal hope that's based on an outcome, but then there's biblical hope. It's this understanding that things are just fundamentally wrong. And we have this deep abiding belief that God is eventually going to set it right. That's Advent hope. That's that deep hope. So it's not not hoping I get a job. It's hoping that God fixes things to where work does not feel so empty. That core brokenness that That leads to all these other problems. Biblical hope isn't regular hope. Biblical hope is this deep expectation that despite how broken things are, God has promised something better. And no matter how it is right now, I have every reason to believe that God's going to break in and make it right. This is why hope is an Advent meditation. Because in this, in this season where we're desperately trying to believe, we're desperately trying to meditate on this reality that God wants to set things right. And it's a hard thing to believe. The world is so messed up. All the pain and shame and hurt and, and, and loneliness that is our world, it's hard to believe that God has a desire to set that right, which is why we do this during Advent, because we have this, this anchor, we have this evidence that God does care, that God does break in, because he did break in. Because he showed up. He didn't stay aloof. He didn't stay apart from us. He descended into our mess in the form of a baby. He did intervene. He did step up. And so this is the season when while we're reminded of the way God breaks in, that we allow ourselves to kindle that hope that he'll do it again. That he's not done with us. That That this isn't what he had in mind. This isn't all there is for God's people. There's more. He came into our story, Emmanuel, God with us to change things. This is why I love Advent. This is, you know, because Christmas is, is a look back. Christmas is looking backwards at something that happened at a point in history where God did something. Hope is saying, how do I respond to that? That's a shameless plug for my thing. You know how it goes. During Advent, we look at what happened back there to ask, what does that mean for now? And what does that mean for up there? What does that mean as we look into the future? The song we just sang, Future Past, we always sing it during Advent because it reminds us that our faith goes both ways. We look back at things that happened as we look forward to things that God wants to do. And the church can get stuck in both directions. You know, you can be churches that live in the past, that, that they're so hung up on the old things, they they don't come into now, and there's churches that are, always have to be caught up in the newest and the best and the brightest and the, the future and where we're going and blah, blah, blah. I feel like the Christian faith is a, that tension between that two. We're constantly looking back at where we came from and, and constantly looking forward at where God is going and what God's vision for this world is, what God wants to do with us. So how do we respond to this? Isaiah stood in his broken city. And he considered all the glory that it had been and all the glory that it was supposed to be. All the history and, and prophecy that was tied into this place. And he hoped. That's what he did. He decided to hope. What I love much most about how he ended this passage is that last verse. This is Isaiah's, how do we respond to this? He said, come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. The title of our Advent series this year is Shine. That's an imperative, meaning it's a command. Shine. So what is Isaiah telling them to do with this hope? He's standing in wreckage and envisioning something better, and he ends with, now, go walk in that. Go do that. It's saying that I hope for a world that I can see in a vision and and I hope for it so real, I'm going to go make it. I'm going to go do it. I hope for a world where where there's equality and so what I'm going to do is go out and treat people with equality. I hope for a world where where people can be themselves and and be honest and not have to hide. So I'm going to take a chance and go out and be authentic. I dream of a world where we're not divided and hateful over politics. And so I'm going to go out and refuse to fight. I'm going to go out and refuse to engage in the in the ugliness. Isaiah says, here's the city I can see. Now let's go walk in that vision. Let's live life like we actually believe this is the way it's supposed to be. And this is not easy. This is not... This is where hope gets hard. It's not pie in the sky, you know, drifting above the clouds kind of hope. This is messy hope. Esther and I are currently in a mess because we decided to help somebody that was beyond our reach. We, we were a little arrogant thinking we could do more than we were really equipped to do. And so we reached out to help somebody. It kind of backfired on us. and It's going to take us a while to clean up the mess. And the first thing we did um, when it all came crashing down was we got together and, and I said, you have to promise me we would do this again and we will do this again because I would rather hope and fall than not hope. I mean, has anybody ever decided not to hope, like decided not to like – 've done that? Come on, be honest. Give me a show of hands. I need, like, to feel. Yeah, we decide not to hope. Anybody felt better afterwards? No. We never, like, when we decide not to hope, it feels terrible. Like, if, like, we think we're being safe. We think we're being, oh, I just will not get my hopes up for that. I just will not do it. Does that feel better to anybody? I don't think it does. I feel terrible when I decide not to hope. So we sat down and we said, it's going to take us a while to clean this up, and when it's done, let's do it again. I want to hope that the world can be better. I'd rather take a chance on people and get messed up than walk around guarded and, and decide not to hope. It's no way to live. It's no way to live. Hope is not a feeling. It's an action. It's something we do. We're supposed to shine. Emily Dickinson in her famous poem on hope said, Hope is a thing with feathers. I believe hope is a thing with shoes on, personally. You know that verse that we love so much that says uh, you're the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden? No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand, but it gives light to everyone in the house. And the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. We're the light of the world. Anybody feel like sometimes we make this verse gross? Like we've we've condensed down being the light of the world, to Christian bumper stickers and K-Love? <laughs> if you don't know, I like making fun of K-Love. I'm not a big fan. But this verse says, let your good deeds shine. Not your Jesus t-shirt that looks like a Reese's t-shirt. Somebody bought me one of those once that's... So let your good deeds shine. Go do these things. I ask the question all the time, what if, what if Christians had to stop telling people they were Christians? What if you had to show them some other way? What if you couldn't tell them? You just had to be so different, so hopeful, so that you, you walked around seeing a different world to such an extent that people were like, what is different about you? I would love it if we could not tell anybody we were Christians unless they ask. What is different about you? Ah, now I'm ready. Now I'm ready. We're supposed to shine. We're supposed to be a light on a hill. We're supposed to live in the world so differently that it affects things when we walk into a room. When everybody else is is down and, and everybody else is... The sky is falling. Oh my gosh, if this person gets elected, what's that going to mean? And we go, it's going to mean God's still on the throne and he's going to do amazing things because that's what he does. And some things will change, but I know God's still in control. I can't wait to see how much we shine when it gets darker. Shining means we're so positive Jesus is gonna break into our story that it changes the way we love. We love differently. We spend time with our kids differently. We work differently. We rest differently. My challenge this week is as we spend the next week meditating on hope. This is Advent season, so you're supposed to spend the next week meditating and, and focusing on hope. That that you would do that. Just set maybe five minutes If you're good at meditation, stretch it out longer, but don't do a Bible study. Don't don't pray right then. Just set aside five minutes and imagine. Just let your your imagination run. What's the world what do you believe the world is supposed to be like? If if Jesus just broke into day, what would change in the world? It's been five minutes of meditation a day this week. Just what could the world be? And then go out and do that. Go out and walk in that. Just try it. And if you fail, come back the next day and do it again. Nothing dies. Just just try living with hope for one week. Envision the world. Stand like Isaiah in the, in the brokenness, in the wreckage. Because our world is broken. It's a mess. Stand in the wreckage like Isaiah and try to see something better. Try to imagine something better and then try to walk in it. Try to Try to live in that vision. The reason I love stories like Roberto Clement and the Ivory Coast soccer team and the San Francisco Dons is because they give us a glimpse of what could be. They stood in brokenness and said, now we're going we're gonna to believe in something better. They allow us to peek into a better way to live. They give us hope. So my prayer today, and a way I would hope we would respond to this, is that, like Isaiah said, let's go walk in that light. Let's go live that way. If you get beat up doing it, come back next week. We'll love on each other and pray for each other and get strengthened again and go back out and do it again. Because that's just a better way to live. Let's go to the table.